Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director of valuation services at CFGI. And in my world, business performance and business value is measured by the numbers. This is the show where we dig a little bit deeper to understand what really matters most in business. Today, we're going behind the numbers with Michael Adler, who's the managing partner of Michael Adler Law Group, law offices of Michael Adler. Yeah. Uh, Either way, Michael, it's my pleasure to have you here Thanks. as my guest on Behind the Numbers. I usually ask my guests to just tell them, tell the audience a little bit about who they are, their background, and, and who they serve, and then we'll jump into some of the issues that uh, entrepreneurs and business owners are facing today. Great. Thanks for having me here. I love being back at RVN. My name is Michael Adler. Uh, for about six years, I've had my own practice. We focus mostly on working with startup entrepreneurs. Um, and through the whole life cycle of businesses. I generally serve as outside general counsel to small and mid-sized businesses. I also do a lot of stuff in the real estate world, but also entrepreneurs in the same way, working with them on partnership agreements, working with them on financing and exits and sales and contracts and partnership fights and business divorces and valuations. So you and I overlap a lot in our worlds. Yeah, no question. I thought it might be fun just to kind of walk through the business life cycle. So starting in the entrepreneurial startup stage and, and walk through through the publicly traded business world and, and working with the executives that occupy those offices. So when, when you're working with the uh, the startups and the entrepreneurs, uh, where does one begin to think about putting something like to get that together? I guess it starts with the formation documents. Sure, sure. So we talk about um, what business, what type of business we're going to operate, what state we're going to operate, even what, you know, the, the tax structure in Philadelphia is higher than the burbs. So we talk about some of the light, some of the advanced steps of the business, where are you going to form? Um, sometimes one person comes to my office, sometimes multiple people. So it's a, it's a much different beginning if there's um, partners involved. And I go through partners sort of, uh, if there's going to be more than one of them, what an operating agreement looks like. It's sort of a prenuptial agreement. I make sure that the two of them, three of them, four of them, have really sat down and thought about not only forming the business and who's going to inject the additional capital into the business, but other issues. What if one of them no longer wants to inject additional capital into the business and wants to be bought out? Have they thought about a um, whole bunch of other things, but we talk about um, what the prenuptial agreement would look like. What would it look like even on the exit? What would If the three of you no longer get along, how are we going to buy each other out? And that's all contained in this initial sort of upfront operating agreement. Yeah, so it sounds like you could be a little bit of a downer in the conversation, right? <laughs> so you've got these entrepreneurs who are excited about their opportunity. And, and I'm just being yeah, facetious no, about course, that. But course. what you're bringing is a level of prudence because they're not thinking through what happens in the worst case scenarios. So talk a little bit about that. So you and I talked off camera, and I talk about this a lot with clients, um, sort of before they sort of start their business, they should have had nine dinners together. And that doesn't mean nine beers, they could be best buddies from Little League or something. Right. Nine dinners about the business. The first three are literally just, you know, dreams. Talking together about how they've got a great idea, what each of them can add, how much each of them are going to add financially, what are their roles, even before they talk to a lawyer. The next three, they sort of get real serious about this, put stuff down on paper. Maybe a lawyer is involved. The next three dinners, I've already exchanged drafts with them. We're already thinking about how we're going to grow this business, maybe some funding opportunities, client opportunities, but also exit opportunities. And the ones that have done this with nine dinners in advance of actually starting the business, doesn't always happen that way. Oftentimes they come with they come with a legal zoom document they started online or something. But when they've really thought about the life cycle of the business, um, it goes so much smoother to a big success because they've already talked about their hopes, their dreams, their likes, their dislikes, how they're going to work together. It works a lot smoother. So nine nine dinners is something that you've seen empirically as as evidence for. Yeah. 
Ten's too many. Yeah. Ten's too many. Eight's not enough. Nine's been perfect. And do they talk in between the dinners? They do. They do. They talk with their advisors. They talk with their parents or whoever, the bank of mom, bank of dad, or bank of credit card, or whoever's going to finance the business. Yeah. Um, but, you know, nine dinners is not a flat nine number. It's just the idea that, you know, it's not somebody you met at a networking event who's going to be your business partner. Someone yeah. who's going to be your business partner is also someone who could sue you later, who could tie up your investments in other business, who could have access to all your books and records, who can sue you for breach of fiduciary responsibility, breach of fiduciary duty, um, usurping a corporate opportunity. In other words, just because you're a partner with somebody doesn't mean you have to do all your deals with that partner. Some people think that if you have an opportunity, you have to bring it to your partner first in this business venture. These are the things that should be discussed ahead of time. And you should know sort of the background. And uh, it's amazing how many times people are partners with somebody and they come to me uh, because their partner is a bad person or something. And we find out, did you know they were declared bankruptcy before? Did you know they had been sued before? They just didn't even do the due diligence to find out who they were becoming partners with. Very important yeah, stuff. And I want to emphasize that point because I was speaking at a, uh, a CEO roundtable not too long ago, an intimate setting over dinner. Um, and one of the CEOs at the table mentioned, we're talking about exit strategy and valuation. And uh, he mentioned that he met somebody at a trade show. Right. Um, they started talking numbers, and he thought, this may be a, a good guy to partner with or sell my business to. Didn't have the nine dinners. Right. What, what would you be saying to him if, if he were watching this program? Well, my instinct is he probably is. Great. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Give me a call. Um, I would say that you can sell your business to the highest bidder. But again, you're not really selling your business until you actually get to the finish line. There's a lot of expenses to get to the finish line in selling your business. And a lot of times it starts with, let me see all your documents. So you're really spending a lot of time on accountants, valuation experts, and lawyers in just selling your business to someone who could be just kicking the tires to see what their competitors are doing. So really get to know somebody before you even ask them to sign an NDA, before you even ask them, before you even give them the financials. But then again, if someone is selling you a ridiculous amount, of, is offering you a ridiculous amount of money for your business, you can short line, I think, the time of having a relationship with them when you're trying to sell the business. More my advice for partners is yeah. getting to know each other. Yeah, so if you're out, it's a moot point. But if you've yeah. got to stay in bed together, so to speak, better know who you're sleeping with. Exactly. But still, I mean, selling your business may sound great on paper. I see ridiculous offers. But if the deal doesn't close, it's really someone who may be just wanting to see what you're doing competitively. And then in the LOI or in the agreement of sale, it always has exits until you actually sign and know that the person that you're offering you, the insides of your business to, the inside workings, the inside financials that you're offering them, but then they can back out of it if it doesn't have sort of a, a payment penalty for breaking the deal. You're really giving away the store for free to somebody, so be cautious about that. That's a great point. You mentioned give you a call. How can people contact you if they'd like to? Great. So uh, I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn as a professional networking. Feel free to connect with me on there. I'm very easy to find. I have a website, adlerlawpa.com. Feel free to email me directly at um, mAdler9000 at yahoo.com or contact me through the website at adlerlawpa.com. It all Great. goes to my email. Thank, Thank you. you. We only have a couple of minutes left in this first segment, but I want to expound on some of the things you just alluded to here. Uh, when you talk about somebody taking a peek behind the, uh, the, the tent, so to speak, to understand your business, how often does that happen? Oh, it, well, it depends what type of business you have. I mean, not everybody in this good economy is really necessarily looking for an expert, but I work with a lot of sales and M&A deals or partnership deals or somebody who has, let's say, their own agency and they want to be acquired by a larger agency so that they can free themselves from the administrative work and stick to the creative work. 
but there's a lot of exchange of financials. Um, you know, I'm working on all sorts of deals at all sorts of different structures. There's real estate deals, there's product deals, branding deals, professional services deals, and those are fun because I'm dealing with really smart clients, most of whom are smarter than I, and I learn from each one of them every day. So I enjoy sort of learning about their financials, seeing if the marriage works, and seeing if we can contemplate and complete the marriage with the right documents in place to protect both of them in case the marriage doesn't work out. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you an unfair question. Sure. But in your experience, is there a recurring theme? Is there a common thread that you see that business owners or entrepreneurs make in their exuberance to get something launched? Launched, uh, well, I think everybody has, you may see this more than I. The first thing that comes to mind is I think business owners have a self-inflated value of themselves, of their business, and uh, it all comes down to what the willing buyer is willing to pay the willing seller, and I think sometimes the expectations of the willing seller don't always meet the, uh, the ability of the market or of any buyer to give them money. So um, I think talking to multiple people about what things are worth, talking to people who've gone through this before, and surrounding yourself with the right advisors that can just ground you so you have a realistic expectation so you can get to that finish line. Yeah, that's a great point, and I, I do see that all the time. Yeah. Uh, most. Uh, folks are using uh, two valuation methods that uh, are known as the back of the envelope <laughs> method and um, the back of the napkin method. And uh, right. ni neither one of those are actual prescribed valuation methods for all you home gamers. <laughs> so okay. I, I think we have to take a commercial break right. now. So um, I'll stick around for a little bit. If yeah, let's do more. that. You stick around. We're going to go pause and, and pay a few bills and we will be right back on Behind the Numbers. Don't go anywhere. They've simply experienced more life. If they were human, we would call them wise. They would be the ones with tales to tell and stories to write. The ones dealt a bad hand who responded with courage. Do not pity a shelter dog. Adopt one. Say we've got grit and we'll take it as a compliment. Because it's our uncommon drive, our spark within, that brings us together and sets us apart. We are temple made. And when others take shortcuts, when others take breaks, when others take the easy way, we take charge. Add us on social media to watch bloopers, behind-the-scenes footage, previews, and more. I work 13 hours a day, six days a week. So when I'm off the clock, I gotta get stuff done. So when I need a snack, I need something healthy, tasty, and easy to eat. Like wonderful pistachios without the shells. They're protein-powered, delicious, and great on the go. And that's perfect for me. Thanks, Liz. A woman without a lot of time. 
Whether you're a gourmet cook or just want to eat like one, visit Rostelli Market Fresh, your home for the freshest locally sourced ingredients to please everyone who loves great food. Our organic meats, quality seafood, and free-range poultry are cut fresh to order. Chefs create culinary-inspired prep foods made fresh every day, which pair nicely with our vast selection of fine wines and spirits. Choose from handmade pastas, artisan cheeses, organic produce, and grocery items, all from the finest purveyors. Rostelli Market Fresh, from our family to yours. RVN. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today my guest is Michael Adler of the Law Offices of Michael Adler. Uh, Mike, before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges that business owners and entrepreneurs face. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the NDA, the very beginning of the process when people are starting to decide whether or not they're going to disclose confidential information. Do people find that to be off-putting, I guess, for lack of a better term? You know, I, I, I deal with NDAs a lot. Uh, clients who have great ideas want, the, one of the first things they want is just a non-disclosure agreement. They want everybody to think they've got the secret sauce. Sometimes investors just don't want to be bound by something. Because if you're a regular investor, an angel investor, you see hundreds of ideas. And the last thing you kind of want is somebody you know, holding up an NDA that they signed three years ago because you invested in something else. I think there has to be some level of trust, and that's why you don't give away the secret sauce and the secret keys right away. But you have to have conversations with people. You have to be able to sell your idea without immediately going to a contract, unless you truly have the, uh, an amazing new idea. Every entrepreneur thinks they have an incredible new idea. The reality is investors have seen a lot of them. Um, a lot of us have seen a lot of these ideas before. Don't get so bogged down in your initial contracts. Start having conversations. Find a good business partner. Let's talk a little bit about the contract drafting process then. So how do we go from NDA to contract? Yeah. Um, clients often are, uh, we're not talking about operating agreements. We're talking about client services agreement or something like that. Clients typically are thinking about three things. They're thinking about how much am I getting paid, when am I getting paid, and what happens if I don't get paid? And that's all they want a lawyer to draft up. And lawyers are thinking about other things. If I'm working with, if I'm selling a product or service to somebody in Columbus, Ohio, I want to think about what happens if you in Columbus, Ohio don't pay my client. So we're going to think about venue clauses. We're going to think about conflict of laws clauses. We're going to think about prevailing parties clauses. If I'm selling you a product, it's likely that you're not going to be the one that's going to pay. So I'm going to have to sue you. I want to sue you in Philadelphia where my client's office is and where my office is. I want to make sure that my attorney's fees are covered. And these are the things that I want to make sure, a lot of these things I want to make sure are in the contract. Same thing with payment terms. Payment terms are extremely important. I want you in Columbus, Ohio to make sure you're putting skin in the game, not I provide you a service and then you pay me later. A lot of these services, there should be some investment, 25% down. It depends on the product or service. But I want the payment terms where there's only a little bit at the end that we're fighting over, which is normal. If I didn't deliver, let's fight about the last 10 to 20%. I see this in real estate a lot too. Um, but let's make sure that we've covered you know, how I'm getting paid, when I'm getting paid, what happens if I don't get paid, and let's make sure we do it on our terms that's best for us. Can we talk a little bit about non-competes? Sure. Uh, no, you know what, let's go to buy-sell first, if you don't mind. Okay. Shift gears, buy-sell. Because this came up in that CEO dinner that happened just recently, so it's, it's a fresh topic on my mind. And the question came up about the, the buy-sell agreement and how it should be structured. And my counsel was, and this isn't you know, an attempt yeah. to sell evaluation, but I, I've seen the pitfalls of one, relying on book value, because right. that's not fair market value. Two, some kind of formula, you know, they'll agree that five times EBITDA, for example, is the right number. And then the challenge at the time is, well, is five really the right number, and right. how do you define EBITDA? So it really should be, in my view, a, a fair market value appraisal at the time. 
But uh, you tell me, what, what do you see? Um, if we fund a buy-sell agreement, if we draft a buy-sell agreement, I see that it's usually only relevant as of the date the ink is dry. Because by the time we're doing it later, either the company has changed uh, finances, has changed ownership, uh, they haven't updated their buy-sell agreement, um, and then what we do is we try to resolve it without litigation in advance of a sale or something. Uh, buy-sell agreements seem to be favored by the financial services industry, not so much us who are counseling clients. Um, uh, they, they're, they're helpful for estate planning purposes, they're helpful for a few other reasons, but I think uh, five times, you know, if, if you can get someone to finance it and, and fund it through an insurance policy or something like that, they're advantageous, but um, normally we end up just trying to figure out what the company is worth at the time of somebody trying to sell, exit, die, or, or bankrupt yeah. or something. Now back to the non-competes. Okay. How effective are they really? I think I told you on my way here, I'm speaking with somebody who is uh, suffering through a, a non-compete he signed. I deal with non-competes a lot. Um, the Wall Street Journal just had an article this week that they're hindering, that, that states' attorneys generals are trying to find ways to not enforce these against the big companies. In a good economy, they restrict employ, employee salaries, they restrict, restrict employee movement. They are enforceable. Um, but they have to be enforceable in a way where there's some sort of trade secret at stake. A judge, and I've litigated many of these on both sides, employer side and employee side, a judge is going to look at the employer and say, you really want to keep this guy from working for 12 months because of something he signed because you made him sign it on the way in? And it depends. The answer is it depends. But yeah. they're all very expensive to enforce and or defend. And usually they're just to keep the third party competitor from stealing employees. There's always a price that can be paid to settle them, but they need to be limited. Two things that always need to be in a non-compete. They need to be limited by geographic scope. So you can't say, I'm a banker, I can't work for another bank in the entire United States. They also have to be limited by temporal scope. So 24 months is probably the outside of reasonableness. 12 months is probably where it can be red penciled by a court. But it also has to be germane and reasonable to the industry. If I'm just taking my business and my relationships to another bank, you know, the non-compete is probably an issue that's gonna have to be negotiated, probably not fully enforced, but you know, we've all seen wins and we've seen losses in yeah. these. Michael, how can people contact you if they wanna learn more about your practice and how they can work with you? Great, I have a website at adlerlawpa.com. Please uh, come check it out, www.adlerlawpa.com. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, send me a note. I'd love to connect and network with people on LinkedIn and introduce anybody to my network. I'm a fairly open uh, networker on LinkedIn. We have a Facebook page. And feel free to give a call. Even my uh, cell phone is 215-485-0542. Please feel free to call, text, email. You can contact me through my website. Lots of ways to get a hold of them. Reach out. You uh, are involved in the real estate space as well, aren't you? I have been for at least 20 years. I've been a lawyer. I graduated Temple Law in 1998. I immediately started getting involved in sort of big firm litigation disputes, mostly involving real estate. I really enjoyed dirt law. And so I dirt law. Dirt law. It's I, a technical term. <laughs> but I enjoy working with buyers and sellers of real estate. I was also general counsel for a few years in private practice with a large property management firm. So working with investors, owners, developers, on everything from buying and selling, 
zoning and land use, with landlord-tenant disputes, drafting leases, negotiating leases, fighting over leases, sale. Lately, I've been doing some interesting matters involving eminent domain disputes with where a township is taking part of my client's land and what that means for the commercial tenants on the property. Dealing with adverse possession cases, which means somebody has been legally or illegally, rightfully or wrongfully occupying somebody's land for continuously for 20 years and then the real owner tries to sell it to somebody else and we say, wait, we've occupied this, we've taken care of this land for 20 years, you just didn't tell us. And that's a protected form of, of uh, part of the real estate law. So these are fascinating things that I studied in law school and get to practice every day in my real estate practice. Fascinating stuff. And that's a different area of specialization not everybody brings to the table, right? Correct. And I, as a, as a trained litigator, um, who also has an interest and experience in real estate, I'm one of the few lawyers who actually handles real estate disputes, so specific performance, a buyer and a seller who fail to agree to perform under a contract. I'm not just gonna refer that to somebody, another litigator. I, I'm very comfortable with handling a specific performance dispute in court. A quiet title action where either heirs of a property um, don't know who the rightful owner is or they're fighting amongst themselves, I'll handle that action where I'll bring an action on behalf of one of the owners so that we can clear title to be able to sell it on behalf of the estate or a dispute between cousins who have a claim. And I really enjoy this. I really enjoy sort of the have, using my expertise with a commercial litigation background, but applying it to commercial real estate and residential real estate, but normally yeah. commercial disputes. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, we only have a few minutes left in this segment. Okay. So uh, how do you feel about talking about capital raise? That's an exciting thing for an entrepreneur in a company. Sure. I mean, we're always looking for financing. Um, it's friends, it's families, it's angels, it's more sophisticated investors. You mean capital is the lifeblood of the growth of any business, yep. whether it's a tech startup, an app, uh, professional services agency that needs marketing dollars. I think it comes down to, again, like knowing who your partners are going to be. If it's going to be a capital raise that's going to require equity, again, anything more than 0.01%, they're your partners. They're in bed with you. They are part of your business, and they can have access to your books and records. They can sue you if you make a fiduciary mistake with their money. Um, if it's, a, if it's capital where it's a loan, know what the terms are, know what the return are, know what your defaults and the reps and warranties. Try to avoid litigation. Have a good lawyer, know who your partners are, know who your lenders are, know what their expectations are, what their return on investment expectations are, and continue communicating with them so there's no surprises, whether they're equity partners or, um, or just loan uh, notes. Know what they're, continue to communicate with them. Tell them the good, tell them the bad, so that they can't accuse you of fraud or concealment or misrepresentation. Yeah, well, it's an interesting lens that you look at these things through, for right. sure. What happens when the business owner, entrepreneur gets to that stage where we're beyond friends and family for funding, and then we're talking to institutional investors, maybe beyond angel, we're talking to private equity? What's um, your counsel for them in those circumstances? You know, it, they probably have a different expect, boy, Great question. I think it matters on the private equity firm. And again, it goes back to communication with the, um, the partners of the private equity firm. Why are they interested in my client? What do they want out of this? Nor do they care about the culture of our company? Do they care about our employees? Or are they just looking to put an investment in? What is their timeline for getting their return? These are the conversations I would have with my clients when you're dealing with more sophisticated institutional investors. 
because I think they just care a little less about the human matters of this. Business owners care, this is their lives. This is a business divorce, we've talked about this a little bit. A business divorce is more emotional than most family law divorces. Most men, women, define themselves more by who they are even than who they're dating, because most of us feel like if we get a divorce, we can find somebody else. But if you steal my business, if you betray me in my business, if you embezzle from my business, this is my business, this is my livelihood, and it's very hard to recover from that. Um, so when you're dealing with institutional investors, some of them are a little more sharkier than some of the other friends and family or more angels. Know what their expectations are for the business. That's very important. Right, and how about when you get to that spot where we're gonna exit? Congratulations. There you go. Yeah. I mean, when we get to the spot that you're gonna exit, I mean, kind of like winning the lottery, if it's a large exit, I mean, already speak to a financial advisor, already have goals and expectations of what you're gonna do with that money. If it's significant amount, I've, I've had a few opportunities to work with folks on an exit where it's more money than they could have possibly imagined. Yeah. What are you gonna do with that money? How are you gonna give back to those who helped you get there? How are you gonna mentor people for the next generation? How are you gonna thank the employees along the way? We talked a little offline about stock and phantom stock options for those employees to keep people who are helping you raise your boats incentivized. Make sure you reward those people. Just because you're getting a big exit doesn't mean it's your last time in the business cycle and it's a very small world here in the Philadelphia market. Keep people in mind who've helped you up and give back and pay it forward. Yeah, and that's a message for folks outside of the Philadelphia market. I think that's universal. And it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, and I certainly didn't prompt you or coach you on that because no. you know that that's a topic that has a high level of resonance with me. But how often are you finding that business owners are really focused on the welfare of their, their team, their families, you know, the, the employees that help them along the way? With my clients, it's, it's more than you'd think. It's what we talk about. It's what I counsel them. It's... Um, Boy, even, even this week, we've had, uh, I've had a few conversations. So a lot of part of my practice, I serve as outside general counsel to business owners, meaning they don't have an in-house counsel. We set up at least a monthly or weekly meeting with the business owners, and that's sort of the relationship I have with them. Not on an hourly billing model, but more on a monthly billing model with a suite of services. And we talk all the time about employees and how to um, retain employees, incentivize employees, and how to treat them like they want to give their sweat and tears and what is, what is in it for them to stay other than $5,000 offered by their competitor down the street. And often we talk about ways that they're personally invested or rewarded in the gains and goals of the business. Keeping, even if it's privately held, keeping financials transparent. Let everybody in the company know how we're doing. Let everybody know that if we hit this goal, this is how we're gonna do in December when we hand out bonuses. Yeah. And it's amazing, like you shouldn't, this is, we have so much access to information in this world and employees do too, that the more transparent you are with them, don't worry about them being your paid enemies. Don't worry about them walking away, invest in them. And it always comes back in a better way. I couldn't agree with you more. Well said, there's really nothing more that I can add to that. It's other part than, of your book. Other than amen. <laughs> uh, but the flip side to that, of course, is in, in the world that we live in with social media, if you do wrong by your employees, it's going to be all over the internet with yep. sites like Glassdoor, Glassdoor and others. Yep. Your, your brand as an employer yep. uh, is going to be tarnished for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, we find our retention numbers are lower, uh, are higher. Uh, our departure numbers are lower. If somebody's leaving, it's for something that has nothing to do with being unhappy in compensation or the way they were treated. It's something just completely different or personal. So, uh, been pleased with the results so far, and as long as we continue to invest the time and training in our clients, 
who invest the time and training in their employees. I'm, I'm continuing to see a lot of successes. That, my friend, is a tweetable moment. And on that <laughs> note, we have to conclude. Uh, my guest today on Behind the Numbers is Michael Adler in the law offices of Michael Adler. Great conversation. Thank Michael, you. thanks so much for joining my me. My pleasure. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers.